there in the back. Kiddos, feel free to head back. And the rest of us, you're going to turn to Genesis chapter 4. The book of Genesis chapter 4, as we continue on in the series in the beginning. And how things came to be the way they are. We're going to do all of chapter 4 this morning, verses 1 through 26. I won't read them at the beginning, but we'll read them as we go through the sermon. All right, now I'll just ask for the Lord's help. And Father, we do pray that you would help us in understanding your word and applying it to our hearts and our souls. Give us understanding. Uh, bring clarity where there might be confusion. And bring conviction where it's needed and confidence in the grace of the gospel and in your son, Jesus Christ. Pray for our children who are learning in the other room, those who are young in the faith here learning. May you grow us all up to maturity and fullness in your spirit and in your son. Amen. One of the things I don't love about social media is that every once in a while things will pop up on your feed that you really didn't want to see. I don't know if this happens to you, but it happens to me. And one of the things that popped up on my feed uh, a number of days ago was a, a violent attack on a teacher in some school. Uh, apparently a large young man attacked a teacher from behind, punched her head on the ground, knocked her unconscious because she took away his Nintendo Switch. It was a, a sad video, and I see more and more of this all the time. And I don't know if it's just my own algorithm. Maybe I need to watch <laughs> that. But I just see violence on social media quite often as things are put out in the world. I don't know if we are living in a more violent day. The, the data maybe won't give us a definitive answer. But it feels like we are, and maybe it's just because we're exposed to violence quite often with global news, with social media in our pockets, violence going on around the world very quickly just kind of comes in and invades our own hearts and minds. Clearly something has changed. You know, this is where I can say back in my day, but back in my day, we did not have active shooter drills in school. But that is now the standard for our kids. So that can be discouraging if we pay attention. And we might wonder at times, what's going on? How did it get this way? Is there any hope? It can be hard to be optimistic when we look at the, the violent, sinful condition of the world and maybe even the violent, sinful condition of our own hearts. And it's hard to be optimistic and say, is there any hope for all of this? And that's why I want to be in Genesis 4 this morning, because we'll see that even in the midst of violence, there is hope. In Genesis 1, God created all things in heaven and earth and created them good. In Genesis 2, it zeroes in on, focuses in on how God created man and woman and placed them in the garden in his perfect context and setting to worship him. In Genesis 3, all that was upended as sin entered the world. The Satan tempted Adam and Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit. Sin entered and the curse was upon the serpent. Humanity was fallen, the ground itself cursed. And now in Genesis 4, we see the result of human rebellion against God. This is sin coming to fruition and spreading now down the line of Adam and Eve. So Genesis 4, and really actually Genesis 5 that follows, can be a depressing section of Scripture, but even as we see death spread, there's hope. And that's what I want to show you this morning. 
that when sin brings death, God ensures his people will live. That's the main hope I want to pass on to you this morning from Genesis 4, that when sin brings death, God ensures, God makes sure that his people will live. That death won't have the final answer, violence and sin won't have the final answer, but life and life in him will be the final answer. So we're going to trace that story and that thread through six scenes that go through Genesis 4. We're going to break it up into six scenes. First in verses 1 and 2. The first scene here in verses 1 and 2 is a scene of hope, a scene of joy as joy is delivered. Two children are born, a cause for joy, a cause for celebration. Adam and Eve welcome the first brothers into the world. Joy is delivered in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. When you have kids and when you're expecting, there are many questions you ask. What will this child be like? Will he look like me? Will he have some of my attributes? Hopefully not too many. Hopefully more of his mother. Will they be a curious child, a mischievous child, a a happy child, a kind of a somber child? What kind of personality will they have? Will they be charming, athletic, academic, funny? It's a time of anticipation and expectation. And you can hear the the joy, the expectation, the hope in Eve's voice. With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And literally, kind of reads, I have gotten me a man. With the help of the Lord, great anticipation. Not only one, but two. The world's first brothers. Maybe they'll be best friends. Some of you read the story. But they had reason for extra anticipation. Because God had given them a promise. Do you remember last week, the promise of Genesis 3? What is the promise of Genesis 3? Well, you may remember that in the fall, God cursed the serpent. And the curse upon the serpent was that he, the serpent, which is standing in for Satan and all his legion, they would be at war with the line that would come from Eve. That the serpent's descendants would be in tension and conflict with Eve's descendants. And in that we have basically two lines that will go through all of humanity. A line in rebellion against God and a line of people following the Lord in submission to him and there will be tension and conflict. And the hope, the promise that is in there is that one of Eve's offspring would defeat the serpent. There would be a serpent crusher who would stand on the head of the serpent and defeat the enemy, defeat evil. So as she's having children, there's this anticipation, maybe this will be the one, the offspring, one of these two boys who will defeat the enemy, defeat Satan, crush the serpent. There's an anticipation built in that runs throughout the whole Old Testament that's never fully satisfied of maybe finally this will be the one. These two boys each had their own profession. Cain was one who worked the ground and farmed. Abel was a shepherd raising sheep. And we'll see that this isn't the only difference between them in verses 3 through 7. Verses 3 through 7, after joy is delivered, life is threatened. And we'll see a moment of worship turn into an occasion for sin. Life is threatened in verses 3 through 7. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. 
The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you not, do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So at some point in time, both Cain and Abel, these two brothers, bring offerings of worship to the Lord. Abel's offering is accepted by the Lord, and Cain's is not. And the question is, why? What is the difference between the two offerings? Some have said, well, maybe it's because of what was offered. Now, Abel brought fatty meat. He was a shepherd. He brought meat in the well, Cain just brought stuff from the ground, you know, vegetables and stuff. I don't think that was the difference between the two. It wasn't so much in what they brought before the Lord, but how they brought it. Hebrews 11.4 comments on this, says, By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. So how was Abel's offering better than Cain's. In what way did it demonstrate his faith? I, I think the answer is there in the text. It says, Abel brought fat por- portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. It does not say that Cain brought the first of his offerings. And I think the difference there is that Abel brought forth the firstborn, meaning the very first that he produced the best, before he took anything for himself, he brought it to God as an offering. And that was different from what Cain brought. It says Cain brought some of his stuff. So there's a difference there. And you can think of the difference in imagining a situation in which maybe this has never happened to you. Hopefully this has never happened to you. But husbands, you're coming home from work and you realize, oh, today's a significant day. I think it might be my wife's birthday. So you run to the gas station and get a card and some cheap flowers and come home and say, here you go. How will that offering be accepted? If it's obvious that you forgot, didn't care, didn't plan, weren't thinking of her, not well. It's not so much in what you brought, but it's how you brought it. And you probably would, not, would have been better off not offering anything at all. That is the spirit in which Cain brought his offering to the Lord. Here's just some of it. Not his heart, his worship wasn't in it. Not the first, not the best, not, not I will give to you, Lord, first. But here's just some of what I brought. And that's the difference. It was a token offering. And God, who knows the heart of Cain, said, I can't and will not accept that. That's not worship. That's begrudging, token. Here you go. So God doesn't accept the offering. Cain gets mad at God for it. He's upset. You should have accepted my offering. And how does God respond to Cain? God gives Cain a choice. This is a gracious warning. Cain, you at this moment have a choice. If you come with an offering in the right heart, of course it will be accepted. 
but your heart isn't right. Cain, sin is lurking. It's creeping in. It's knocking at the door. It's prowling around like a roaring lion waiting to devour you. If you give in to it, it'll be the death of you. God is there giving as a gracious warning to Cain, run away from this sin. It's been said by some that either you will be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And that's what God is saying to Cain here. You have a choice now. Do something about the sin that is in your life. We don't like it when that warning comes to us, when that admonishment comes. There's something wrong in your heart. You have to change this or it will destroy you. We don't like to be told that we're sinful, that we might be wrong, but sometimes, in fact, if it's right, if it's from the Lord, and if it's true and accurate, it is always a grace of God to be told, you're going down the wrong path, turn. And this is God's grace upon Cain. Cain, you're going down the wrong path, turn. And if there's something in your life this morning where you need to turn from, this is God's grace to you, and I don't know what it is, but God knows and you know, and this is God's grace saying, warning. Danger, Will Robinson. The the alarm lights are flashing. They're blinking. Turn. Because sin will kill and destroy. And that's exactly what happens in these next verses, verses 8 through 16. How will Cain respond? We see in verses 8 through 16, sin is manifested. After life is threatened, sin is now manifested in Cain and upon Abel. Verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So God tells Cain, watch out, fight your sin, warning, run away, battle with your sin. And what does Cain do? The next verse. No fight at all, he just gives in completely, tells his brother, hey, let's go out to the field. Reminiscent of old Yeller, takes him out. Attacks him, kills him. And I'm struck by how quickly, how immediately in the genesis of humanity we have murder and hatred. How long after the fall did it take for us to kill one another? Like zero generations. We didn't get out of the starting line. If you wonder why in the world can we not seem to find peace, well, it goes all the way back. 
All the way to the beginning. We've been at war with one another ever since the first generation. This is what sin does. Causes us to be at war with one another because we're at war with God. So God confronts Cain and says, what happened? This sounds familiar, doesn't it? The same way God approached Adam in the garden. Adam, what happened? God approaches Cain. God knows what happened, but again, he's trying to see how Cain's going to respond. What happened, Cain? Where's your brother? I don't see him around. What's Cain's response? He responds just as simply as Adam responded. He denies it, and then denies having any responsibility for his brother. I don't know where he is, and why should I know? I'm not his keeper. I'm not responsible for him. I don't have any obligation or responsibility to my fellow brother, my fellow man. I don't know. That doesn't have anything to do with me. So now Cain is a murderer, he's a liar, and he's selfish without mercy. So God places a curse upon him. You are under a curse. It's very similar language to the curse he placed on the serpent. You are now cursed. And there's a connection there. Now you are under the line of the serpent. Cursed just as he was. God pronounces a judgment upon Cain. You'll notice the judgment itself looks familiar. It follows a pattern. What is the judgment? The ground is not going to bear any fruit for you and you're going to be banished from the land. Sounds like an outworking of Genesis 3. The curse upon Adam. Toil and work. Banished from the garden. Now that same thing falls on Cain. You are going to yield no fruit, and you're going to move further away from the garden, which is further away from the presence of God. You're being removed, outcast, taken away from God's presence, and God's goodness. I found in a commentary, there's an old story about a particularly heinous crime that happened. Two brothers set out to deceive and murder a young woman who had a lot of money, a lot of inherited wealth. So one brother tricked her, got her to fall in love with him, married her. She never met the other brother, and the other brother on their honeymoon killed the woman for her life insurance, so they both could collect and receive that wealth. Evil. Evil stuff. In their trial, they complained that they were being harassed by the police, and they thought they should be pitied for how much media was after them, police were after them, and how they were being treated unjustly and unfairly by being on trial, and the judge was mean to them. And they're complaining about how... This isn't fair that we've been mistreated so, facing the consequences of our actions. And that's exactly Cain's response to God's judgment. That's not fair. That's not fair to, to punish me, to send me out. How dare you? There's no remorse for sin. There's only a concern for how I'm being treated in the moment. And this is my favorite part of Cain's plea I might get killed. What's the word I'm looking for? The phrase, oh, that's rich. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we use that phrase, Maggie and I, amongst ourselves, and we hear certain complaints that are ironic from whom, <laughs> you know, considering the mouth they come from. 
ironic complaint coming from your mouth, Cain. I might get killed. But look at God's grace upon Cain. God is gracious over and over and over. He says, don't worry, I'm going to put a mark upon you. So it's like in a mafia movie where somebody's made a made man and they get into the mafia and now they're protected by the mafia. You're a made man. Don't worry, there's a mark upon you. You'll be protected. I'm not calling God a mob boss, but I'm just saying, making an analogy here. That Cain is now made man. He, he's marked, and scholars debate what this is. Maybe it's an actual tattoo. We don't know. But somehow, God has protected Cain and ensured that he will live. That if anyone touches him, God's vengeance will call, come upon that person seven times seven. Seven being a perfect number. Basically saying, perfect protection. You're going to have Cain. You'll live, but you're going to wander. You'll be away from my presence further away from the garden, in the land of Nod, which Nod means wandering. So you're nodding off to sleep, wandering in your mind. That's the fate of Cain. Do we have a serpent crusher in here? One who's going to defeat the enemy and defeat Satan? No. One was killed, and the other fallen into sin and banished. Maybe, through his descendants, we'll have somebody better. So we read about his descendants. And verses 17 through 22 are just kind of an interesting insert into the descendants of Cain and his story. We wonder, is there any hope for humanity? And verses 17 through 22 actually kind of give us a little glimpse of hope. And I'll show you what I mean, because in here, culture is developed. In verses 17 through 22, we see progress, human progress, uh, developing things. I'll show you what I mean. Verses 17 through 22. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mehujael. Mehujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Adah and the other named Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. So we read here of Cain's descendants, and by God's grace, life continues, and Cain is actually building a city. We have development, growth. You'll notice that one of Cain's descendants takes kind of center stage. His name is Lamech. We'll talk more about him in a bit. But his three sons are significant here. He has three sons. First name, Jabal. Jabal was the father of those who lived in tents and raised livestock. In other words, he was the founder of, the beginning of, raising livestock, buying and selling of animals, of cultural development, of production of food. Then there's his brother Jubal. Might sound familiar, that name Jubilee. It's a kind of a joyful name. He played music with a pipe and stringed instruments, so here you have the cultural development of music, the beginning of the arts. And then there's another brother, Tubal Cain, who was the father of those who began to work in forging tools of iron and bronze, the metal worker, beginning the innovation of technology. So you have these three sons who are developing culture. Humanity is progressing. Production of food, production of arts, production of technology. There's hope for humanity. There's a phrase, I've used it before, the theologians use called common grace. 
Common grace is, it's not necessarily, it doesn't mean like ordinary or plain grace, but it's grace that extends to everybody. God's grace that extends upon the whole world, that all people, by the grace of God, are given gifts and abilities and have God's grace upon them. Maybe not necessarily in a saving way, but everybody, by virtue of bearing the image of God, can contribute wonderful things and do wonderful things. Whether or not you're a believer in Jesus Christ, whether or not you're a believer in God, God has gifted all people. And this is why, when you're being operated on by a doctor, you'd rather they went to medical school than seminary. Right? Because when you're being operated on by a doctor, you want somebody who's gifted in that trade, you don't really care too much what their spiritual life is like, you just want them to do the job well. And that's because God has given common grace to all sorts of people, and God has gifted people in all sorts of wonderful, miraculous, and wonder, in just great ways. And here's the example of that. Even at the beginning, God is growing humanity, culture is progressing, and maybe through human cultural progress, we can bring about salvation. Hmm. This is optimistic. There, there, there are signs of hope here. Humanity is progressing, and maybe through this uh, progressing line of Cain, through their cultural development, maybe they can fix all the problems of the world through food production, through technology, through arts. We're going to save the world by song. I think this was tried in the 80s. We'll, we'll join hands across America, and through human progress, all will be well through our cultural development. Well, let's see how it goes. Verses 23 and 24. And we find out not good. This has been called the song of the sword. Verses 23 and 24, violence is celebrated. In this song, violence is celebrated. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. It's a poem, it's a song of boasting, celebrating his violence. Notice who he's speaking to. He's speaking to his two wives. We saw in Genesis 2 the ideal, what marriage is, the union of one man and one woman. And now that ideal, that definition of marriage is already broken or altered in taking two wives. To be really honest with you, and maybe you can correct me, I don't know of anywhere in the Old Testament where polygamy is explicitly forbidden. And maybe I'm wrong on that, you can correct me. But whenever we see multiple wives, it just never goes well. It's always a result of or the beginning to a problem. It is always messy. Not because of... Boy, I want to make sure you hear me correctly here. Not because there are more women involved, but because the definition of marriage has been altered because of sin in the man and in the union. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Lamech shows his sinfulness and his song brags about his vengeance, his bloodthirst, his escalation of violence. If somebody wounds me, hurts me, I'll have vengeance upon them. There's an Old Testament principle, and you've heard this, an eye for an eye. That's a law for equitable, righteous judgment, particularly in the court of law. 
People were not supposed to take out vengeance personally for themselves. That is a prerogative that only God has. God is the creator and the owner of all life. He is the only one who has the prerogative of vengeance. And we'll see that in the New Testament. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to people. That's his prerogative. We as people, under God, are to administer justice. And in the Old Testament, there's this principle of eye for an eye. And, and it's not so much saying that if an eye is gouged, you must take an eye. It's a limiting principle of vengeance. It's saying if an eye is taken out, don't do more than that. For justice to be justice, it can't be beyond, above and beyond. The penalty can't be above and beyond. It has to be fitting with the crime. There's a limit upon justice in the Old Testament. And here, Lamech celebrates that he has no limits in his personal vengeance. Even the numbers he uses are interesting. What, did, what kind of vengeance and protection was God going to have on Cain? Seven times seven. What does Lamech brag about? My vengeance is 70 times 7. I go above and beyond God in my vengeance. If Cain is bloodthirsty, Lamech is worse. So what we find is down that line, it doesn't get better. It just gets worse. So is there any hope? Is this world just going to get worse and worse and worse without any hope? Is God going to abandon this project of humanity? We come to verses 25 and 26, and this closes the story. It's there for a reason. It's a signal that hope is renewed. If I can borrow a Star Wars phrase, a new hope. In verses 25 and 26, hope is renewed. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. They named their boy Seth, which means set or appointed or granted, saying, God has granted me another child. Eve's song is a little bit different than it is before. In the beginning, Eve said, I have gotten me a child, or I have brought forth a man with the Lord's help. And there's the Hebrew's tricky there, and there's some translations that even say, I have brought forth a child like the Lord. It's almost as if, and it depends on how you read it, but it's almost as if Eve is saying, look what I did. But now notice how her song has changed. and Who gets all the credit for this child? God has granted me. It's not her work. It's God's work. He has granted me another child. And what is happening through this child? He has a child, and at that time, people begin to call on the name of the Lord, which is the most important cultural development in this passage, people worship. Now, people call the name of the Lord, which is a way of saying they proclaim God and worship him. This is the birth of public worship. People are gathering together through the line of Seth, 
to worship God. That's the cultural development that matters. You can have all the human progress in the world, but unless God is worshipped at the center of it, it will all lead to death. But if by God's grace, he grants a child, and through him, people gather together to worship the name of the Lord, then there is hope for humanity. And that's what's going on here. Through all this filth, God's going to bring forth a child, and through him, people will worship the Lord. And that sounds like a gospel message to me. There will be one offspring, one seed of the woman, who will not be overtaken by sin, who will not succumb to violence, but will actually receive violence, be persecuted, that he may give life to others. Whole Testament is looking forward to the birth of the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. One who is born good, who will follow God, who won't let sin overtake him, who will worship God perfectly, who will bring us back to paradise. Not one who takes vengeance 70 times 7, but one who forgives 70 times 7, as he calls us to. One who is gracious and merciful. And through Jesus, when sin brings death, God ensures people will live. A couple thoughts of application. Life can be really discouraging sometimes. And it can be very discouraging to look around and just see sin. And see it spread. And wonder, when will this stop? It can be very discouraging sometimes to look in your own heart. Say, man, when will this stop? And the hope of Genesis 4, there at the end, is that God is going to work it out. He is going to ensure his grace will win in the end. So there's encouragement there. There's also a call here. The same call that goes out to Cain. You have a choice. Come before God and worship with a true heart. You will be accepted. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been in your past, whatever is in your heart, if you come to God and the Lord Jesus Christ and worship, you will be accepted. So there's a caution and a warning and a promise. And just as God speaks to Cain, you have a choice. I speak to you. You have a choice. You can turn from sin. You can worship God. You will be accepted by the grace of Jesus Christ. God's arms are wide open. Even if you have let sin overtake you in the past, even if you've been violent, even if you've been a murderer, no matter what you've done, one of our founding fathers in the faith of Christianity, Apostle Paul, was a murderer. But he ended his life as a righteous man saved by the grace of God. And the same hope is there for all of us, that God will bring life to us. So leave with caution and a warning and a promise of life in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, Father and God, we thank you that uh, in this story we see truth. The reality of who we are, that sin and violence has stained us from the beginning, but the hope of who you are, that you're God who gives grace, who is patient with sinful people, and in the end will make sure that life wins out. 
through your Son, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. May we place all of our faith and hope and trust in him, not be discouraged, to not be tempted by sin, but to turn away and to follow you, because you are worthy, you are gracious, and you are Lord. We praise you. We are accepted through Jesus Christ in you. We love you, Lord. Amen.